What's up, y'all? It's Zach from Meeting Corporate, and yes, we're here. We're back. We're having conversations, you know, that amplify the voices of black and brown people at work, and we do that through what? Now, you know, I'm acting, I'm talking to y'all like this is a live podcast, but this is the point where you would say by having authentic, available, transparent conversations with black and brown educators, executives, entrepreneurs, influencers, creatives, activists, and non-melanated or lower melanated uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, allies, right? People who are advocates of uh, inclusive, diverse, and equitable spaces. And so and we do that, right? Like we have these conversations. You know, I, honestly, I feel like every time we come on here, we have a great guest. And today, today is no different. Today we have Dr. Janice Gassum. Now, listen, Dr. Gassum is a diversity and inclusion consultant and founder of BWG Business Solutions, LLC, a company focused on creating strategies to foster an equitable workplace. Gassum is a professor at the Sacred Heart University, teaching courses in diversity and inclusion, performance management, data analytics and employee engagement. Now, look, let me just go ahead and give you all some stats. OK, <laughs> all right, just just real quick. So y'all know, because, you know, some cause this is the thing, you know, we're going to talk about this in the interview, but sometimes, you know. I don't know. Folks kind of look at, at, at these platforms and not living corporate is fairly unique, but they look at this stuff like, oh, this is just, you know, passionate stuff, quote unquote, and it gets dismissed. No, no, no. Dr. Gassum has bona fides. OK, so she's the P, a Ph.D. <laughs> she's a Ph.D. in organizational psychology, TEDx speaker. She's authored over 100. Listen, yo, 100. 100. <laughs> hold on. They're not hearing me. 100 articles. Now, you might say articles on what? Articles on uh, Lipstick Alley? No. Articles on Shade Room? No. Articles on Forbes? What you talking about? Okay, she's out here. She's making moves, okay? She has a competent communicator certificate from Toastmasters International, so not the local spot, okay? <laughs> Catalyst certification and unconscious bias awareness spoken for Yale, H&M, and various other conferences and universities. And she's taught undergraduate and graduate courses in employee engagement, performance management, diversity and inclusion, amongst others. Dr. Gassum, how are you doing? Like, I just got to hold on. I got to at least give you I got to give you a cheer or something. Thank you so much. That was Zach. That was a really nice intro. You made me sound so important. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really excited to get into this conversation. How are you today? You know what? I'm doing really, really well. Um, I'm actually in New Orleans. I'm in New Orleans. I'm, oh. Yeah. My cousin-in-law is getting married. And um, wow. yeah. congratulations. Yeah, That's absolutely. fun. Absolutely. So shout are out you going to try some, uh, <laughs> are you going to go to Cafe Dumont? Oh, I might. I may. Yeah. You gotta have, you gotta, it's, I think it's 24 hours. But the lines are usually pretty long. Um, but if, if you have a chance, if you're if you're there for a little bit of time, that would be fun. Wow, that that sounds really nice. It's, it should be it should be great. It should be great. You know, this, and this is the challenge, right? And you know, as you get older, so I'm I'm just now hitting thirty, right? So you get older, and you know, you can't just kind of eat and do some of the things you. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. Like, you know your body. <laughs> Your body sends you a memo later, like, hey, yo, I know you tried to be cute earlier. Um, but, but it ain't happening. It ain't happening. You got an appointment now. So what's up? And now you, now your knee hurt. You don't know why. Right. So uh, but no, no, I'm, I'm doing great. How are you doing? What what, what what do you got going on these days? Uh, I'm doing good today. I, I got my I aim for seven hours to sleep, seven to eight hours. That's good. So I got my seven hours. 
Um, today I have to do, I'm writing some articles. I, I did some uh, Forbes interviews, so I have to just transcribe them. And then I have grading, of course. So um, that should be, that should be, keep me pretty busy. Okay. All right. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, look, you, you, you can't, it can't just slay by itself. You gotta, you gotta put in the work and you're doing it. So we appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you. It, thank, thank you, so we thank much. you in advance. No, no doubt. So look, let's get into it. You've established a deep brand in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, your profile, at what point in your life did you realize that this is the work that you, you wanted to do and why, like, why did you, what, what led you to, to come to this point and, and, and create this brand for yourself? Um, well, I guess uh, sometimes people ask me this question, and I, I think it's a combination of the fact that I come from a, my parents come from Cameroon, um, which is a West African country. So I, throughout growing up, I kind of grappled with not being Cameroonian enough, you know, because I don't speak the language, I don't cook the Cameroonian food, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't really know a lot about the culture growing up because I was raised, born and raised here in America. So um, I think that that combination of the different culture, as well as, you know, growing up in predominantly white um, neighborhoods and going to predominantly white schools, and then also just recognizing my blackness. It's almost like um, Dubois talked about in The Souls of Black Folks, a double consciousness that black people in America experience, where it's kind of like, they have to grapple with their own blackness as well as being a black person in a white America. And I think it was like a triple consciousness. So trying to figure out um, where, you know, where I fit in the black sort of um, scope as well as, you know, trying to assimilate to white America. And I did a lot of that in school, you know, so that I would be accepted. And then also embracing my culture and being true to my culture and, and that aspect of my background. So I think that that combination um, always made me really interested in diversity and inclusion. Um, in 2011, I started a YouTube channel on where I talked primarily on race and quote-unquote black issues and things that I felt were relevant to the black community. And... and Um, I have kind of uh, scaled back and I haven't made a video probably in in six or seven months, but I still, you know, post videos on there here and there. And I was able to um, cultivate a pretty loyal and strong audience. I had about 20,000 subscribers on that channel, but I I also moved my focus to to corporate uh, diversity and inclusion because I saw that there were holes in the system when I would work in different companies, I noticed certain things. Um, So I guess my focus moved from sort of these issues that are relevant to black America to how do I fix these issues in corporate America? No, and it's, it's just such critical work. First of all, let me take a step back. So I think it's interesting when you think about like, just like black identity, underrepresented identity, and like just all the nuance of that, like just of your own identity period, like let's just like not talking about within the context of any other social framework, but you have you have yourself, like you your own lived experience, which is complex, and then you're placing that within the context of being like in a white majority, and then 
I don't know. It's just it's just a lot. And I wonder and it kind of leads me to my next question. When you talk about like when we talk about this space and diversity and inclusion um, and we talk about really kind of taking these conversations that that black America um, is having. And I want I'm not trying to just exclude other um, under non-white spaces, but I'm going to speak to black America because that's the that's the experience that I live in. Um, so historically over the past, I don't know what, a hundred and some odd years, like we've had thought leaders talk about and have these internal conversations or in-house conversations about what it means to be black. And then of course we've had, you know, th- you know, we're knocking on the door today, but there've been people who've knocked on the door before us having these conversations and bringing these, these discussions to light. Um, I guess my, my, my question is, as I look at your profile, do you ever see or feel a sense of being in like two worlds at once? And and these two worlds that I'm talking about is one, I'm seeing like a bit of a, I'm seeing like one camp when it comes to this corporate DNI space, this corporatized DNI space that is very heady. It's very, um, yeah. it's very academic. Um, it's largely white um, and, mm-hmm. and, and institutionalized a bit. And then there's this other, there's this other group that is continuing to grow and build that is more activist and it's, um, in its function, more uh, driven and founded by themes of justice uh, mm-hmm. and, and also driven by themes of lived experience. Um, when I look at your profile and even just what you just shared about you being a first generation uh, American and you being um, and being a first generation professional, like, like a first generation variety of ways, but also having this academic background. Do you see yourself straddling both of these worlds? Do you see one, I mean, I, I'm kind of making an assumption that you even agree with my analysis of like corporate DNI. I'm just curious about like mm-hmm. how do you see yourself as you operate in this space? No, absolutely. Um, I have a close friend who um, I, you know, I've been doing these diversity dinner dialogues um, in New York City, um, which is just like a free workshop where anyone who has an interest in diversity and inclusion can come. We, you know, we come, we talk about a specific topic. Um, mm-hmm. Papa John sponsors it. And um, in doing that, I actually got to know um, a girl who's become one of my close friends. Her name is Donna. She's getting her PhD in um, in psychology, but her dissertation focuses on uh, cor- corporate diversity trainings. And she's looking specifically at how receptive people are when the trainer is not a diverse person. So is a white person or seemingly a white person. Mm. And going back to your point, I do agree. I think that unfortunately, anytime you're talking about uh, diversity, equity and inclusion, I think people are more receptive to the message when it comes from a white person. Um, that's just unfortunately, you know, what it is. If I'm talking about or you are talking about your lived experience, I think that people put more stock in when a white person says those things or finally realizes that there are inequities that are taking place. I do commend not to uh, take anything away from white people who are in this space who are using their privilege right. to um, amplify the voices of people of color. Absolutely. But I just think that it's something that's important to note is that in this space, I do think that there is sort of like a hierarchy. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, black, black people are at the bottom of that hierarchy. And I think that when it comes to issues that are relevant specifically to black people and people of color, those get prioritized last. Um, and I think that that's unfortunate. People 
people don't understand that you can be um, you can be a marginalized group but still be racist. So I think that it's it's important to understand those sorts of things. I don't know, I guess, what the solution is, but it's just something that I've noticed. <laughs> no, straight up, and it's it's interesting too. Like so. Your, your point around like hierarchy, because even even as I talk, as I talk to other uh, diversity, equity, inclusion professionals, right? Like something that people will jump out in anytime we have these conversations, it's almost like a point of pride or like particular insight when people say something like, you know, diversity, and inclusion isn't just about ethnicity and race. And I'm like, well, wait, OK, <laughs> it it's not. You're right. Can we also acknowledge that ethnicity and race have played a critical part in like America's formation and policy structure and even today like especially today i'm not saying that those the other diversity dimensions don't exist but it's like people are so excited to like get away from that and then talk about, mm-hmm. it's about diversity of education and geography and mm-hmm. hair color you know I, I keep you know i just tell you i i really look the government they made i'm serious they made they made crack and diversity of thought in the same lab. They did. It's crazy. Right? <laughs> it's nuts. That's a way to it. Yeah, because I, I think it's really easy to like divert the conversation. Right. Um, and that's why I think I like to do these diversity dinners and focus specifically on an issue. Um, because I think when you're talking about, for example, allyship, um, allyship, that conversation, um, people think of allies more so as allies in the LGBTQIA plus community. They do. Um, but any marginalized group needs allies. And I think that when you don't focus specifically on race or ethnicity and you bring up the diversity conversation, I think people like to divert it and say, well, you know, you also have to be inclusive to this group and that group and that group. And I totally agree and I understand that. But I think that there are very unique challenges that people of color and particularly black people in this country face in that um, the main uh, to the main way that people are able to see that we are black is our skin color. You know, if you're part of a marginalized group where your identity is invisible, I do think that your experiences are vastly different from an individual like me or like you who our skin color is apparent to anyone that looks at us. And I don't think that it's, um, you know, I'm not in the, I guess I'm not the type of person that um, likes to say who is struggling the most or like to play the uh, oppression politics. But I do think that that is an important point that needs to be acknowledged. Just because you're part of a marginalized group doesn't mean that our experiences are the same. You know, and I think that sometimes people like to say, well, look, I'm oppressed, too. I have this particular invisible identity. And it's like our we might have similar experiences, but we also um, have vastly different experiences. And I think that sometimes that's overlooked. Even when I come in and do these corporate uh, workshops related to diversity, I am always encouraged to not focus on race. Um, And I recently had a. Um, like a consultation. So when people reach out to me to do a workshop, they'll schedule a call and then kind of figure out what I'm about, what topics I can speak to for their uh, corporate audience. And I was specifically told recently um, to not, um, not victimize people in the workshop. So, you know, people don't want to be victimized. People don't want to feel like the finger is pointed at them. Um, And sometimes people don't really want to directly address race. 
And I recognize and understand that before I was kind of like, I didn't really quite understand that. But I know that, you know, when you come into a room and say to somebody, you're because you're part of this race, uh, you have privilege and your your people have systematically and systemically oppressed you know, based on the history, people shut down and there's resistance. So right. it's almost like you kind of have to, I don't have any kids, but I know that um, sometimes when you have kids and they don't want to eat the food or take the medicine, you can kind of put sugar around it yeah. with the medicine <laughs> and give that to them. Yeah. So it's almost like with diversity and inclusion, you have to give the sugar with the, the hard, I guess, lessons and the hard realities because yeah. people get very defensive. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So when you talk about and you share the idea that um, that that folks will tell you, hey, like, just don't talk about it. It's like, what, how does how do those requests come about? Like, How do they how do they frame it? Um, sometimes they're very direct. <laughs> Other times it's more subtle um, where I give them a list of topics. And of course, you know, I, I've been on YouTube since 2011, just talking in front of my camera about, quote unquote, black issues and how the, you know, racial dynamics. So it's a, a topic I feel very passionately about. Sure. Um, but when I give them my list of topics that range from, you know, microaggressions to um, how to have conversations about race in the workplace to how to get the ROI of your diversity programs to emotional intelligence. Um, what I've noticed is typically people like me to talk about emotional intelligence Versus some, and I think emotional intelligence is definitely an important topic, but it's not something that's difficult to digest. You know, it's 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 not something that's going to make people feel uncomfortable. So it's kind of like these are my list of topics, um, and just in choosing the topics, they're you know they'll reach out to me and say, oh, could you do a talk on this, or could you do a workshop on this? And it's never been um, some of those more difficult to swallow concepts like race. Um, because, and I understand, you know, you want your audience to be receptive to it. And I'm just, unfortunately, people really aren't receptive to conversations about race unless it's a white person giving it. Um, a good example of that is I showed my students the Chelsea Handler, uh, documentary that came out on white privilege. I think that's what it's called. And me and my white privilege or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Showed it to them. There was a particular clip where. Chelsea interviewed some conservative women uh, from Orange County, California, and they were saying um, people of color get privileges like school admissions, like jobs. They were referring to this myth that affirmative action is uh, reverse racism. And so, you know, I showed them that clip and then I spoke to how all of the things that were said in that clip were were just factually incorrect. And um, affirmative action wasn't created to give unfair advantages to people of color and women who are not qualified. And also white women benefit the most from affirmative action. So I think that um, just watching that whole documentary, um, the reception has been interesting because I think if someone like Kevin Hart or Dave Chappelle or, you know, any other comedian did a documentary Mm -hmm. on race, I don't think it would have gotten the same reception as Chelsea Handler's documentary. And I think that that's unfortunate. It's interesting, too, because I was having a conversation with uh, some with some majority folks. Right. And they were talking about the documentary and they said, well, they said, well, you know, I don't know, like 
And then part of me is like, you know, is this just another shtick? Like, is, is she even really being serious and authentic? Right. Like how, how honest is this really? Um, mm-hmm. But then, but then also like there are people who watched it and really, you know, thought it was just groundbreaking and courageous and innovative and, you know, <laughs> all these other words. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I thought it was, um, it was just interesting. I think that when she was speaking with the women in that particular scene who were saying these things, she didn't really dispel what they were saying. They were like, well, you know, um, everyone has uh, privilege and it's not just white people. And Chelsea wasn't, I, I think she could have been more direct with dispelling their myths. And it's just incorrect to say that black people are getting, people of color are being treated um, you know, better than white people in this country because that's just not true. It's just, it's just factually um, false. It's factually, you look at right. um, the rate of arrests, you look at uh, who gets jailed, the amount of time that's given. If you just look at our criminal justice system, it's right. so apparent. You look at, you know, and and um, what is her name? I'm getting the author's name, but she specifically talks about um, looking at the demographics of people who were pulled over and arrested um, driving on the New Jersey Turnpike where they did this extensive study and they found that, of course, the majority of those people were black and brown men. Um, So just like uh, it's obvious that those women are living in like their own delusion. And I I think that maybe if I was sort of encapsulated in my own white America and I didn't interact. It's obvious they don't interact really with anyone of color. Right. Um, I would probably have those same falsehoods as well. And one thing that I try to remind myself is that I can't really fault white people for not caring about certain issues because in their minds, they think that it's not relevant to them. Right. So we're, we're you know, humans are self-motivated and we focus on things that we think will impact us. I think the fallacy is thinking that it doesn't affect them because if Trump is spewing this rhetoric or if, if if our politicians are doing something that negatively impacts one group of people, ultimately that's gonna impact you in other ways. So I think that like there's this false idea that um, that the diversity and inclusion doesn't impact you or you're not, it, you don't have to be involved in the conversation. But I think that, you know, it's it, that famous quote um, that somebody said where it's like, if one group is oppressed, we're all oppressed. Or if, you know, one group is not free, none of us are free. So I think that it's that. It's just that these women in that clip didn't understand how, like, we're all interconnected. And 100%, right? And there's there's multiple uh, points of evidence that we can look at to talk about like just dis- disparity and uh, inequity um, and disparate treatment for black and brown people juxtaposed to white folks, right? So you have, of course, you have the prison, prison, um, just the criminal justice system. You also have like healthcare and treatment. You have mm-hmm. access to public transportation. You have just general public school education. Um, you have access to food. So just um, like neighborhoods that are that you know you have food deserts like those are those are real things and they're impacted by by race and so mm-hmm. no so 100 percent um so so janice diversity equity inclusion is broad and you talked about earlier that you talk about a, you cover a variety of things you speak on a variety of things um can we can we zoom in on a topic real quick let's talk about the emotional labor of black and brown dei professionals particularly women in this like diversity, equity, and inclusion space, right? Like, I'd really like to talk about that. Are you down? 
Yeah, sure. Okay, of okay. course. So, so in the history of the show, you know, I brought up the concept of emotional labor, but I've I've just said it. Like I'll be like, you know, people don't really consider the emotional labor, and like I'll talk. I've talked about it with colleagues at my job. I've talked about it with um, with friends, but I don't think I've ever done. I've never taken the time to really explain what emotional labor is like the, as a concept. Would you mind talking a little bit about what you believe? Like, what is your definition of emotional labor? Absolutely. Um, so it's funny you ask this because at the recent diversity dinner dialogue I had earlier this week, um, there was a diversity professional. He works at a large uh, consulting firm and he asked what we he, he posed a question to everyone who was there and he said, what do you do to for self-care? Um, because this D, uh, D&I work is very exhausting. So what do you do with self-care? Um, and, you know, one thing that I realized is I never really escape it because I feel like you had said it's our lived experience. So anytime I, I and I don't watch TV, but when I open my phone to, to go on to Instagram, Um, You know, the people that I follow are a lot of these like Sean King and a lot of these, um, the Savoy show. So people who report on news that's related to black people. So sometimes I just find myself scrolling past stuff because especially Sean King stuff, I don't always have the bandwidth for it. And if I've had a long day and I'm just not in the mood for my day to be ruined, I have to go past stuff. But also, like, for me, I think fellowship is a really important uh, part of just um, dealing with the emotional labor of it. I think fellowship with my fellow uh, black and brown people, it just helps me Um, because it's almost like when you're around people, when you're around the majority It's almost like I saw a picture where someone had like a mask on a black person. It's like when they go into corporate America, you put your mask on. And then when you get home, you take your mask off. So I feel like um, when you're around your friends, you're free to take the mask off and just, you know, explain what you're going through at work. And my friends and I, we talk a lot about our work experiences. And I, you know, my experience is a little different since I'm not necessarily in corporate America. I'm in academia and then I do consulting and academia has its same politics, but it's a little bit different. Um, but listening to, you know, I have a close friend that works at Uber and just listening to all of my different friends experiences. I'm just like, wow, you know, this is really, really interesting. And that. I mean, in a weird way, the the fellowship helps me to sort of cope with some of these, um, the work that I do. So that really helps me. Um, And also, it sounds weird, but I'm big with sleep. (laughs) I always try to get my seven to eight hours because I think that, um, and there's research that indicates that when we're under stress, when we're not getting enough rest, we're sick, we're more likely to, um, our, our thinking isn't as sharp and as crisp. And interestingly, people are more likely to fall into discriminatory behaviors when they're, they're uh, sleep deprived. So I always try to make sure um, that I'm in, or you know, as much as I can, that I'm, I'm getting enough sleep, I'm getting enough rest, I'm, I'm going to the gym, even when I don't feel like going, um, to make sure that I'm treating my body well. Uh, because there is this idea that, um, you know, in our society, you're not productive unless you're busy. And I really try to try to emphasize the importance of sleep and rest, especially when you're doing something as taxing as um, diversity and inclusion work 
or just being a person of color in the workplaces, you know, even if your work doesn't relate to diversity and inclusion, that's exhausting um, in itself. So I think that those are really important for me is just sometimes scrolling past those pages and those things that will bring me more stress, getting rest, and then just the fellowship. And so then do you think, do you think that the concept of emotional labor is explored enough, like within, like within, within like diversity and inclusion. And then also like as a concept when you, when we, when we talk to uh, companies and clients and other organizations. I don't, I don't think that it's, um, and, and I, it doesn't really happen as much to me. Sometimes when I'm on a plane and I'm reading a certain book, someone might see something and comment. Um, but I've seen sometimes where DNI professionals are wearing a shirt um, that makes a really bold statement and someone makes a comment about the shirt. And it's like, um, it's exhausting because sometimes you're, you're out and you don't want to have a conversation about diversity and inclusion, but somehow it gets to that conversation. So I think that people just assume that because this is something you do for a living or you enjoy doing, that you want to talk about it 24-7. Um, and that's not always the case. So I think that it's not something that's explored enough and in enough uh, detail. And so then, like, you know, what does fatigue look like? Like, you've been you've been in this space for a while. Like, at what points do you realize, like, hey, I really need to you know, engage in what, in what is restorative for you. So you taking a break, you getting off social media, you sleeping a little bit more. Like what is, what are the signs of fatigue for you personally? Um, I think when I have an opportunity that's presented to me and instead of being excited, I just, I'm already anticipating how tired I will be after the opportunity is a good indication that, um, maybe I need to sort of slow down. Um, and, yeah, I think that, that that would be the main thing for me. Sometimes people will reach out and say, oh, can you do this? And it's an amazing opportunity, but I'm just like, oh, I have so much on my plate. So I can't, in my mind, I'm just like, oh, I can do it, you know? And it's just, for me, it's just a matter of, sometimes I need to learn. One thing I need to learn is um, Shonda Rhimes had a book called The Year of Yes. I need a year of no. Amen. Um, and I need to just, sometimes it's it's really powerful to just say no to things that, you know, will leave you drained and overwhelmed, even if you feel like it is for a good cause or it's for the greater good or it will benefit the person or the group that is um, getting the service. I think sometimes just saying no or just saying no or not right now yeah. uh, is really helpful for me. So that's an indicator to me when I'm kind of like reached my point of exhaustion. <laughs> I think. That's that's just a really good point. I think especially when you talk about these types of spaces, right? Like, you know, people will reach out to you for a variety of things that, and, and 99.9% of them are going to be good. But, and so because they're, they're genuinely good things, it's hard to say no, but it's like, man, I'm only one person, right? Like I don't have an inexhaustible amount of energy. I need, I have to create some space for myself. Um, let's talk about this because and I really want to get back to something you said earlier in the conversation. So you said sometimes mm-hmm. people reach out to you asking you to talk about specific things. Are there ever any moments when you consider your profile, right? You consider like mm-hmm. the work that you've done in academia as well as the, your personal life and your journey and your lived experience. Do you ever battle feelings or uh, insecurities around being tokenized? Um, I 
don't. That's it's interesting. That's not something I. I think that um, even if you are choosing me for this particular role, or you're asking me to do this because you want to check some boxes. I'm still going to achieve the ultimate goal. So I think that I don't really look at the vehicle. I just look at, you know, um, am I able to accomplish or achieve this goal? I, I recognize and understand that there is a possibility that maybe uh, the powers that be saw what I looked like and said, okay, we need this person. So we look like we're, um, we're being diverse and inclusive. Um, but ultimately getting the opportunity to, sort of try to push the needle and move the needle forward when it comes to building a more inclusive culture, it's fine with me. So it doesn't matter to me that if the goal was to check some boxes because I'm still going to do go in there and do what I really um, need to do and what I want to do. So I, I try not to think about that because I think um, for me, if I started thinking about that, it would um, be like a never-ending rabbit hole yeah. of like, are they really... Um, are they really choosing me for my credentials or they they see that I'm a black female and they want to check some boxes? Um, so I, I try not to um, think like that uh, because ultimately I'm like, I'm going to come in here and do what I'm supposed to do. And I, I try to just come in and do an amazing job so that even if they were trying to, um, even if the purpose was to just check the boxes, they, they'll see like what a strong you know, worker I am or what a strong um, consultant I am. And they'll, they'll understand that they made the right decision. No, I, I hear that. I think, and so what I'm, and what I'm taking away from that also is just like, you know, people can choose you for whatever motivations they have. It's about how you decide to show up in that moment. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's interesting. Like I, you know, like transparently, like, like I, I have those, it's something I, I, I'm, I struggle with, right. I struggle with, the idea of man okay why did you choose me but then to your point i know for me like i'm gonna i have a, a fairly specific brand so when i show up like there's mm-hmm. a story that i'm gonna tell there's there's a way that i'm going to move there's a way that i'm going to work and you know we'll see we'll see how comfortable you are with that and if you're not comfortable with that and you decide you want something else then you know that's fine too but i have to you know i have to show up and deliver on who i am and then let the chips fall where they may after that. Um, okay, so so we talk about we're talking about emotional labor. We're talking about you know uh, self care and kind of you know getting getting those energies back. I think something that's like really under understated as well at work for diversity and inclusion professionals and just black and brown people um, in general, right? So even if you're not explicitly in diversity and inclusion um, like a, a space, but just at work is the emotional labor of just being other in majority white spaces, right? Like, like right. so, so like, I'm curious, what are ways that you believe that organizations and that aspirational allies, as well as just leaders can help ease the emotional labor lift for black mm-hmm. and brown folks in these spaces? I think it, it goes back to organizations really trying to make us feel included um, in my university, um, I, and I teach in the business department, there's no other black female. Um, there's other women of color, um, a few who are of Indian, or one who's of Indian descent, one who's Chinese, um, but there we're like one of few. Um, and then at the university, I don't know how many tenured black professors there are, but there are very, very few. Um, so 
you know, I think that one thing that uh, organizations can do is just try to um, take additional steps to make people who are the only feel included. So I'll give you an example. I was working at a university in New York City that um, when I started, they said that they needed more diversity and inclusion. They needed the faculty to look like the student body. And this is a public school in New York City. Um, it's uh, part of a large university system. So most of the students come from um, different backgrounds. You know, there are lots of uh, black and brown students. Yeah. And the professors just didn't reflect that. One student told me I was the first, a black student told me I was the first black professor he's ever had. Wow. So, um, you know, they, I got there, they said, oh, we really want diversity. And then they didn't do anything to make me feel included. It was like they they tired me and dropped me off. Um, my office was in and little microaggressive behaviors. Um, I'm no longer there, but I was in the psychology department at that university, but my office was in the English department. There was no name on my office. Um, and I was, even though I was visiting faculty, so it's kind of like not guaranteed that they'll renew your contract. Sure. I was teaching more than any other professor in that department. Um, I was also teaching during the, the, the winter intercession. So wow. um, when you get like a month off, I was literally like I had a week and a half off. And then January 2nd or 3rd, I had to start back teaching. at it. Wow. So like, I think that the inclusion piece is so important because companies just look at the diversity on the surface and say, we don't need a diversity program. We have lots of black people. We have lots of people from Asia. We have lots of this and that. And it's like, but do they feel included? That's really the important part. So I think that where companies miss the mark is that inclusion piece. So the university that I'm at now, um, Sacred Heart University, I think that they've done an amazing job with making me feel included. Even though I'm one of the only, um, I'm frequently invited, you know, they always have like off-campus events for faculty members. And if someone's retiring, you have these parties and all of that. And it's just like the department chair will reach out and say, you know, Janice, are you going to come to this? Or would you like to join this committee? And I, I just feel like um, last year was my first year working there full time. And I, they were just so, all of the faculty members on their own would come by my office I'm sure they're like, who is it? I look younger than I am. So people think I'm in my 20s um, and I'm 32. So people are like, who is this young black girl with these faux locks sitting in an office? Like, what? So they'll come up to me and just say, hey, how are you? What's your name? Um, they'll give me their card. They'll connect with me on LinkedIn. Yeah. And that's not something that I experienced at this other university that I worked at. So I think that um, they really made me feel a sense of inclusion, even though I was the only, um, literally it was like a line of professors in that where my office used to be. I know I was the only black woman um, on that floor. I didn't see any other black women. Um, so, it, you know, just making you feel, including you, inviting you to things, trying to just, you know, check on you. And um, just really quick, um, Ernst & Young did a study where they tried to measure uh, belonging that people feel in the workplace. So they developed something called the belonging barometer. And what their research found, this was last year that it came out. So what their research found is that um, what the, the number one way to make employees feel a sense of belonging is uh, frequent checkups. So if you are a manager or you're another employee and you come to the office of 
someone and say, hey, how are you? How was your weekend? And you do this frequently. That is the best way to make employees feel a sense of belonging. So I think that at my university, uh, my colleagues do that a lot. And that's what really makes me feel like, even though I'm the only, they are really making me feel like this is, I'm part of uh, a family. So first of all, um, you know, thank you for sharing that. You know, I'm, I'm curious when you were going through the experience at, at the, the previous institution, did mm-hmm. any of it feel like you were being gaslit a little bit? Like, did you raise any of these concerns? Like, hey, you, know, you got me all the way over here in this other group. And hey, I don't have a name on my door. Like, did you raise any of those things? You know, I didn't, um, unfortunately. And um, a part of me felt just so, and I'm sure many of us um, as people of color feel like this. I I honestly was like grateful that I had a job Mm, um, because I hadn't finished my PhD yet. Okay, Um, I was grateful I had a job. I was earning more money than I had ever earned in my entire life. Mind you, I I graduated uh, with my PhD when I was 30. So I was literally most of my life I was in school. So I'm used to, you know, not having health insurance. Um, You know, when I moved to New York, I didn't have health insurance when, you know, so all of these things, I was grateful to have benefits, grateful to have a job, grateful to have my own office. That was a new experience for me. So I guess I didn't say anything, you know, not, I guess I didn't say anything Hmm. Um, because I was so grateful for the opportunity that I was afraid that if I, pointed these inequities out that that opportunity would be taken away from me. Mm. So I know that many times uh, people of color, black people in particular are in positions where maybe you didn't think you would get this far and you have opportunities to sort of speak up, but you're worried that by speaking up, it could jeopardize your job or jeopardize your opportunity. And that's how I felt. So I didn't say anything. Um, I knew that in my mind I wasn't going to be at that university for a long period of time. So I think that's what kept me going. I was just like, this is a stepping stone. Um, and it, ultimately it was. And I, I left that. I was only there for a year. And they didn't renew my contract, um, probably because I didn't finish. I hadn't finished my PhD, but I knew that it was temporary. So you know, it's just a, it's such a, it's such a real point, right? Because I know there's I mean. It's for a good reason, right? So, like, black and brown folks will get in these positions, and we're like, and it's more than we've ever had before. So, like, not comparing, not relative to anyone else, just our own journey. Like, this is this is a peak, right, relative to what we've experienced. Mm-hmm. And, and so then we're like, okay, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say anything, and then not, you know, because this almost seems too good to be true already. So I don't want to, right. I don't want to mess this up. Exactly. And imagine if you had a job at like Google. You know, Google is, um, you know, like, and who wouldn't want to work at Google? And you're being um, treated unfairly from your manager or from coworkers. um, And you felt like I never imagined being at this company. Let me just keep my mouth, which a lot of us do. We're just like, let me keep my mouth shut. But Google is a company that I want to be at for a while. So it's like, what do you do, especially the easy thing? And, you know, what I hear people giving advice as far as like how to advocate for yourself. Sometimes I hear people saying just quit. And I I think that that's um, ultimately what's going to have to happen. But for some people, that's that's not an option. Yeah. If if you're the sole breadwinner in your family and many people are relying on you and you're feeding many mouths, I think quitting sounds nice. 
but it's not practical, especially if you don't have anything else lined up. You just have to figure out and then it goes back to the self-care because you're experiencing so much stress at work. What are you doing outside of work to sort of mitigate the stress that you're experiencing? And for me, that was one of the hardest years of my life because I was um, I had just moved to Connecticut. I was teaching in New York City, so I was commuting. It's only an hour commute um, on the train, but I was uh, commuting to uh, New York City every single day. And I was also teaching in Long Island um, because they were, you know, ultimately they were underpaying me. They were overworking me. And then to supplement that, I was so there was a point in time where I was teaching seven courses, which, you know, anyone who teaches at the university level knows like three courses per semester is like three or four is like a very full course. That's, that's, yeah, that's full. Real talk. You're, seven you're is real like real. next that's level. Nuts. I was yeah. teaching on Saturdays. It was like insane. The, the amount of classes that I was teaching. Um, but my form of self-care was, you know, I was going to the gym a lot. And I was just, you know, a lot of fellowship, meeting up with friends because, you know, the reality of it was that they were severely, you know, moving from universities, Zach, I, um, I was able to increase my salary by $30,000. They were underpaying me like a ridiculous amount that, you know, and when I brought it up, that's something I did bring up. Um, when I was hired, I was like, why am I being, why is my, why does my contract say this amount? And the, um, the department chair was like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're paid based on a a scale. It was a public university. So they base it off your teaching experience, your credentials. And because I didn't have a PhD, blah, 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 blah. So, um, you know, I did try to advocate for myself in that sense, but it was just kind of like, sorry, this is what you're going to get paid. And I was just like, okay, well, to supplement this, I'm going to work at these other universities so that I can get what I think that I deserve. So it was, um, it was really difficult. I think it's easy to say quit, but for many, for many people, quitting is not an option. So I think really going into what you're doing for self care when you're experiencing this stress is important. And then I think planning your exit strategy. So if it's Google, Maybe you want to have a year or two years or three years on your resume, but you know the environment is toxic. I wouldn't say just leave. I would say get that on your resume and build as many connections there as you can, but plan your exit strategy and save up money. If you really think that you have to leave at some point in the near future and you don't know if you'll have a backup job, then just plan, save up money, make sure you do what you can to you know, so that when that day comes, you're ready. And it's not just like a, you made the decision off of a whim. No, it's, it's just so true. Right. Like, cause I know there, there have been, I've, I've seen it and honestly I've been, and I've, I've done it right where I've been in like really toxic environments and I just left. Um, but I, but I left on, I didn't leave on the terms I wanted to leave on. Right. So I wasn't mm-hmm. prepared. Right. I wasn't, I didn't have, I didn't have the financial backing that I, that I wanted to have. Um, I didn't have, you know, I just, I wasn't in the place that I wanted to be, but I finally just left. And that happens a lot, especially with, with our generation, right? Like millennials, like, you know, cause, cause we'll just kind of bottle, especially what I've seen from black and brown folks is mm-hmm. we'll, we'll just kind of bottle it up until we can't take it anymore. And then we'll just, you know, we'll leave, we'll just blow up and just quit. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. Like it, that's not, that's not a sustainable way uh, mm-hmm. to, to function. I think the other, yeah. I think the other point that you called out is super true, and I think it just it it really speaks to the 
the different lived experiences of, of different folks, right? Is that you say, well, just quit. Like, so for me, I'm a big advocate. I'll tell people to quit. Right. But mm-hmm. it's easy for me to tell people to quit when I'm a, I'm a black American. I'm my mom. I'm not, I'm not sending money to my mom. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't have, it's just me and my wife and my, mm-hmm. and my wife works. So it's like, mm-hmm. if I, if I quit my job, one, I, I felt, I know that I can get a I get another job very quickly. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm projecting that on other people like, oh, well, you're only responsible for yourself. But that's not true. Right. Like, that's mm-hmm. just not true. You have people like I have. A, I have a really good friend who she's paying. She's paying her mom's mortgage, her mom's health care. She's sending money back to her family in uh, in Nigeria. And mm-hmm. like she's doing she's doing all of these things on her very modest salary. And it's mm-hmm. a toxic work environment, but she can't just leave. Mm hmm. You know, sometimes people comment on my social media and they're like, um, why are we trying to change these white institutions? They don't want us there. Why don't we just build our own institutions? And I'm all for that. But I think the reality of it is every single black and brown person is not going to be working in a black and brown uh, led institution. So what are we doing for those of, you know, those people of color who are not in you know, those black owned businesses, what, what are we, how are we creating an environment for them where that that's sustainable? So I think that that's also um, an important point to look at is just like, really, how are we overcoming? Because the reality of it is that that's, that's just not what it is right now. No. You know, every single person is not at a black owned company. No, you're absolutely right. And like, I know, like, even when living corporate started, right, like, like a couple of critiques that we got early was, why are you trying to teach people how to navigate these white spaces as opposed to trying to help people build them? I'm like, okay, look, first of all, if you want to, we can look at the history of America and we can see that there's been, there's been historical pushes for that black and brown people, black folks, we've been creating our own things since antebellum. Okay. So like we've been, we've been building our own churches, our own fraternities, sororities, our own business, our own communities. And there's been a consistent white lash against that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not we're going to stop. We don't stop in black businesses. uh, Entrepreneurship continues to grow. However, we also know because of historical inequity um, and just the way that white supremacy and patriarchy are set up, that those institutions will never be as big as Amazon. I won't say never, but well, it will will be a long time before they're big as an Amazon or a Google Mm -hmm. or even a Facebook. Right. Like that's just not the way it works. And so it's we I do. I believe that underrepresented folks help build this country it is 100 percent um reasonable and fair to have discussions about what does it look like for us to thrive here this none of these things would exist without us so it is reason it's i don't think it's one or the other i think it's both and it's a fine and uh right discussion and pursuit on what does it look like to to thrive in these spaces? Um, like you said earlier, like everyone's not going to be working at a black and brown place. Every black or brown person is not going to be an entrepreneur, just like every white person is an entrepreneur. So, you know, most of us are going to work for somebody. So mm-hmm. what does it look like when you work for somebody? And likely, because again, we're in America, is likely going to be a majority owned institute, majority owned space. What does it look like for you to be successful there? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's, um, it falls on both because I think that, and that's probably a whole nother conversation because even marginalized groups hold negative views about their own identities. For example, like there's many negative stereotypes that black people ourselves perpetuate. Right. And even if we're leading a company, we may have 
uh, colorism issues or mm-hmm. we, we may be a colorist. So there's like, even if you're in a black owned institution, white supremacy can still be rampant. And I think that um, uh, us understanding that is important too. Cause I get those comments sometimes where, you know, people are like, why are you, you know, why are you trying to, you know, do this and do that? And even with companies, you know, some people have asked me why I allowed or accepted a partnership with Papa John's when the CEO is obviously, uh, or the former CEO, I'm sorry, is, is uh, probably racist. Yeah. And I said, you know, if this company is going to try to make amends and is going to try to, you know, and, and they've done other initiatives where they're trying to really um, show that now they're focused on diversity and inclusion, I'm not going to say no. And I'm not going to say I'll never take your money. They've hired a black woman as their chief diversity officer. They've hired a Ghanaian man as their chief branding officer. Shaq is now on their board of directors. The CEO is no longer on the board. So they've been doing things. You know, they donate to HBCUs. So different things that I'm like, okay, I can accept their, you know, they're trying to fix what it is. But I think that it's tough because it's like, do we forgive companies where they they have many um, egregious actions that they the CEO has committed? Do we forgive them or do we just um, move on and just cancel them? I think that that's, that's an important um, question it's, to think about. It, it is right. But I guess here's my, here's my challenge with that. So first of all, like when you're talking about getting that money from Papa John's, only thing I was thinking about was like, listen, <laughs> like you gotta, get, this, this, yeah. this is, this is my whole thing. Right. So I, I, I don't think that like, we really talk about like how capitalist America is, right? Like you need money to survive. Like you need money mm-hmm. to do anything. And so you know, if you want to say, okay, well, I'm not going to take this money from Papa John's. Okay. So are you going to take this money from Johnson and Johnson? Are you gonna take this money? Like, right. every, like every, like this whole, all of America was built on slavery and oppression and ex- exploitation of black and brown people. Um, and Asian, and, and again, and people of color as well. Like, so including Asian Americans too. So like we wouldn't have any of this. So like, if you wanted to like, again, like I don't, I don't like, I don't like saying the term slippery slope, but my whole thing is for me, if, you're going to give me the bag. If you give me the bag, I'm not, I'm, as long as you know that I'm not going to adjust my message, you're not asking me to adjust my message or expecting me to adjust my message. I'm going to take the bag right now. There are certain groups, you know, that I'm not taking the bag from. Like I've had people, you know what? This is like breaking news. I haven't told anybody on living corporate this. So, you know, someone actually hit me up and wanted to get Candace Owens on here. And I really? Said, yeah. And I said, no, like, wow. <laughs> I said, no, that's, Interesting. I said, y'all, I said, you big boy. We live in corporate. You know, we got the <laughs> interesting. What are, what are your thoughts on? I have my own thoughts uh, <laughs> on her. I, I watched her. Did you watch uh, the revolt summit that I, she was I, in? I, I did. I did. I did see her up there being loud and wrong. But yes, yeah. <laughs> but I, one thing that I didn't like was I think when you bring people with opposing views, you have to allow them the opportunity to at least speak that's true even though, and my husband disagrees with me he's like she's lying like she's full of lies why even give her the opportunity or the platform and i'm like well that's why they brought her up they there. brought her up there though so if you're gonna bring up the, if you're gonna bring them up there then you gotta let them talk yeah and that's why i and my husband's like no but she's just blatantly lying and i'm just like yeah but they brought her up there to speak and i think that um that, that's interesting. Did you tell the person no, or you said you'll think about it? Oh no, no, I said hell no, nah, like off the top, <laughs> like, like my wow. all the southern in me came out because I was like, no, like I'm not doing that, right? And so, yeah. 
Um, and and That's I, interesting. I wonder what um, she would speak to because I, as far as I know, uh, she's not in corporate America. She just, you know, um, does these talks or she has her YouTube channel and she, but you know, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so, so then, and so then the same person was like, well, I'm also friends with, um, I'm also friends with, uh, Ben Carson. Like, would you want to have him? But I was like, no, I said, no. I was wow. like, and I said, and I said, no. And I said, no, because I was like, look, I said one, like, I don't like that association is not making any sense. Like, mm-hmm. we're not. I was like, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a conversation. It's not going to be a conversation. It's going to be me tearing down some old black man. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. Um, Cause I literally don't agree with anything he's doing. So I was like, but that, this is my thing. So like though, so like at that level, I'm like, no, I'm not taking it. Like, so let's just, I'm like, I'm not taking a bag from them, but like a Papa John's. Yes. I'll take a bag from Papa John's Facebook. Yes. I'll yeah. take a bag from Facebook. Yeah. Because I think the difference between Ben Carson and Candace Owens and Papa John's is that, um, and even Kanye West, if you yes. want to think about it, I, <laughs> I haven't really seen any of them be apologetic. They're just like, this is who I am. And they're going to go on as many platforms as will let them speak. Um, So it seems like your audience, I don't think, would be receptive to that. Um, And would just be like, you know, Zach, you're just trying to get them on to get more clicks. For the the clout. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that with Papa John's and with some of these other companies, they realize that they made a mistake and they're like trying to fix it. And I think that that's what would make me, I don't know, it's tough. I don't think we should just cancel companies that where the CEO says or does something that is, you know. You need the bag. I think that's my, I think that's like my, that goes back to what I was saying from the top. It's like, look, we live in a capitalist society. Like if someone goes, hey, I messed up and this is what I'm trying to do. And I really want to get around, like I'm trying to make moves and whatever, whatever. And there's a bag out there. If the ex-CEO a former CEO of Papa John's wanted to come on here and let me talk to him and grill him about why he said what he said, his background, what he's doing now to actually create an impact like today. If we could have that conversation, like an accountable, frank conversation and what advice he would give to other white senior leaders and executives on how to drive and be more inclusive and be more aware of their own biases, anti-blackness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we could have that type of conversation, he's more than welcome to come on the show. But if he's coming, but if you, have, you see what I'm saying, if you want, if, if mm-hmm. they're the, the current, the current uh, inclusion and diversity uh, leader for Papa John's, of course, they're, they're welcome to come on the show. But like, like you said, like someone coming on just to be in like, oh, no, nah, I'm just going to be loud, proud and wrong. It's like, mm-hmm. no, it's not going to work. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that like um, it, it's sometimes you feel like, you know, I don't ever feel like am I selling out, but sometimes. You know, I'll get comments like that where people are like, why are you focused on, um, you know, what people of color should do? I did an interview and I wrote an article about some mistakes that uh, women of color make in tech. And somebody wrote me and said, why is the onus fall on the, the women of color in tech and not on the companies? And I said, I've written many articles right. on what companies can do to be more inclusive. But I think it's also important to, to best position yourself to be successful. I've made mistakes in my career and I've done things where I could have, you know, even as far as like branding myself, I've had a LinkedIn for years. And within the last two and a half years, I started to really get into LinkedIn, but I could have really been more active and gotten more opportunities from it. And there's been times when at work I've been antisocial. And I didn't want to hang out with anyone that wasn't like me. And I think that that is problematic when you're trying to advance in your organization. Sometimes you have to go to those events 
you know, mingle a little bit, smile and do whatever. And um, Minda Hartz talked about this in her book, The Memo, yeah. about like the importance of sort of fraternizing with your colleagues and how that can help you when you're trying to advance. So I think that even as a woman of color in the workplace, I've made mistakes. So I think that that's important to recognize and not just be like, it's all the company's fault. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, and so it's, it's interesting. We've gotten the same type of feedback, right? But it's like, I, my whole thought is, look, we're all grown. There's a certain level of agency that we have as professionals in our career. And yes, we're going to talk about the systemic structural challenges. Um, I think we would be doing like just, it's intellectually dishonest um, and insulting to not pair that. It's like, it's not either or it's both and, and not equally on either side, right? Like there are, are larger responsibilities that these organizations have to create inclusive and equitable and diverse spaces. And, and there's also responsibilities and just things that we can be aware of as underrepresented people on how to navigate these spaces. Like, absolutely, right. And it's not about respectability politics. It's not about, um, it's not about anything that's asking you to sacrifice your dignity or your self-worth. It's about just you being knowledgeable because there are things that people in the majority understand and they know in navigating work that we just literally don't know. And so it's about it, that that type of knowledge is incredible. And I, and I know the article you're referencing um, that you wrote, yeah. it's, but again, I think they, they, they go hand in hand. Um, look, this has been an incredible conversation, Janice. Um, before mm-hmm. we let you go, any parting words or shout outs? I just hope that anyone listening to this can just look at what each of us can do in our lives to really um, deconstruct oppressive systems. So even if that's something as small as like retweeting or reposting something that like the stories of someone from a marginalized group, I think that that's still moving the needle and amplifying their voice. So I, I try to do that as much as I can and just highlight People that deserve the shine may not get the shine because even in the DNI space, there's a quote unquote hierarchy, and I think certain people you and I have discussed this get get a lot of shine, while there's right. other people doing a lot of the groundwork who aren't recognized as much. And not that you should do things for recognition, but I think that amplifying other people's voices is important. Um, so yeah, that that's pretty much it. Um, anyone who wants to discuss things more with me can just find me on Instagram. Um, I'm Janice J nice. So J A N I C E J N I C E is me or add me on LinkedIn and I'm Janice Gassum on LinkedIn and we can chat more. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, so first of all, uh, you know, we're going to have all of your links as well as your Forbes profile. So people can check out all of your, your super dope articles. So we got you on that. Um, y'all, this has been uh, Living Corporate. Okay. So good conversation. As always, we have the best guests. That's right. I'm going to say it. We got the best <laughs> guests. Um, and, you know, you know, we typically do a thing. Uh, we typically drop air horns. If I remember, we drop them at the top. But, you know, I forgot this time because I got too excited because we're just having a super co- dope conversation. So I'm going <laughs> to drop them right here. Just thank you very much. This has been a super cool conversation. Thank you so much, Zach. It's been a pleasure. No doubt. Um, listen, y'all. Live in corporate. Google us, right? You get on Google or um, what's another uh, Yahoo. I don't know. I really just be on Google. It's not even an ad, (laughs) Uh, but you get on Google and whatever your little search, your little search thing is, um, you type in living corporate and you'll see us, man. We out here, man. We on Twitter. Uh, living corp underscore pod instagram living corporate and we're on um on, uh, we have all the domains right so www.living 
dash corporate. Please say the dash dot com. Livingcorporate.co, livingcorporate.net, livingcorporate.tv, livingcorporate.org.us. We got all the living corporates, Janice, except for living corporate, like all the way with no dash dot com because mm-hmm. Austra- Australia has that domain. But we got the rest of them. Oh. I know, right? They own this corporate housing thing. But if you go into <laughs> SEO, if you go into SEO, like we 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 hopping over them though. If you Google Living Corporate, like we hopping over them now. So we 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 I'm just saying, like we the brand is getting stronger. Um, let's see here. I think that's it, y'all. You've been listening to uh, Zach, and I've been having a dope conversation with Dr. Janice Gassum, speaker, educator, um, mover, shaker. Uh, name taker, edge snatcher, uh, writer. What else? What else, Jen? What, what, what else, Janice? What, what's what's the um, System deconstructor. <laughs> I don't yes. know. Yes, system deconstructor, disruptor. Come on, bars. Yeah. Let's go. All right. Yeah, All right. Intentional inclusionist. <laughs> Ooh, intentional. Wait a second. Intentional inclusionist. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Till next time, y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.